Khan Helm by Hugh Walpole. I was, I suppose, at that time a peculiar child. Peculiar a little by nature, but also because I had spent so much of my young life in the company of people very much older than myself. After the events that I am now going to relate, some quite indelible mark was set on me. I became then, and have always been since, one of those persons, otherwise insignificant, who have decided, without possibility of change, about certain questions. Some things, doubted by most of the world, are for these people true and beyond argument. This certainty of theirs gives them a kind of stamp, as though they lived so much in their imagination as to have very little assurance as to what is fact and what fiction. This oddness of theirs puts them apart. If now, at the age of fifty, I am a man with very few friends, very much alone, it is because, if you like, my Uncle Robert died in a strange manner forty years ago and I was a witness of his death. I have never, until now, given any account of the strange proceedings that occurred at Faildyke Hall on the evening of Christmas Eve in the year 1890. The incidents of that evening are still remembered very clearly by one or two people, and a kind of legend of my Uncle Robert's death has been carried on into the younger generation. But no one still alive was a witness of them as I was and I feel it is time that I set them down upon paper. I write them down without comment. I extenuate nothing. I disguise nothing. I am not, I hope, in any way a vindictive man. But my brief meeting with my Uncle Robert and the circumstances of his death gave my life, even at that early age, a twist difficult for me very readily to forgive. As to the so-called supernatural element in my story, everyone must judge for himself about that. We deride all we accept according to our natures. If we are built of a certain solid, practical material, the probability is that no evidence, however definite, however first-hand, will convince us. If dreams are our daily portion, one dream more or less will scarcely shake our sense of reality. However, to my story. My father and mother were in India from my eighth to my thirteenth years. I did not see them, except on two occasions when they visited England. I was an only child, loved dearly by both my parents, who, however, loved one another yet more. They were an exceedingly sentimental couple of the old-fashioned kind. My father was in the Indian Civil Service and wrote poetry. He even had his epic, Tantalus, a poem in four cantos, published at his own expense. This, added to the fact that my mother had been considered an invalid before he married her, made my parents feel that they bore a very close resemblance to the Brownings, and my father even had a pet name for my mother, that sounded curiously like the famous and hideous Bar. I was a delicate child, was sent to Mr. Ferguson's private academy at the tender age of eight, and spent my holidays as the rather unwanted guest of 
various relations. Unwanted, because I was, I imagine, a difficult child to understand, I had an old grandmother who lived at Folkestone, two aunts who shared a little house in Kensington, an aunt, uncle, and a brood of cousins inhabiting Cheltenham, and two uncles who lived in Cumberland. All these relations, except the two uncles, had their proper share of me, and for none of them had I any great affection. Children were not studied in those days as they are now. I was thin, pale and bespectacled, aching for affection, but not knowing at all how to obtain it. Outwardly undemonstrative, but inwardly emotional and sensitive, playing games because of my poor sight, very badly, reading a great deal more than was good for me, and telling myself stories all day and part of every night. All of my relations tired of me, I fancy, in turn, and at last it was decided that my uncles in Cumberland must do their share. These two were my father's brothers, the eldest of a long family of which he was the youngest. My uncle Robert, I understood, was nearly seventy, my uncle Constance some five years younger. I remember always thinking that Constance was a funny name for a man. My uncle Robert was the owner of Faildyke Hall, a country house between the lake of Wastwater and the little town of Seascale on the seacoast. Uncle Constance had lived with Uncle Robert for many years. It was decided after some family correspondence that the Christmas of this year, 1890, should be spent by me at Faildyke Hall. I was at this time just eleven years old, thin and skinny, with a bulging forehead large spectacles, and a nervous, shy manner. I always set out, I remember, on any new adventures with mingled emotions of terror and anticipation. Maybe this time the miracle would occur, or I should discover a friend or a fortune, should cover myself with glory in some unexpected way, be at last what I always longed to be, a hero. I was glad that I was not going to any of my other relations for Christmas, and especially not to my cousins at Cheltenham, who teased and persecuted me, and were never free of ear-splitting noises. What I wanted most in life was to be allowed to read in peace. I understood that at Faildyke there was a glorious library. My aunt saw me into the train. I had been presented by my uncle with one of the most gory of Harrison Ainsworth's romances, the Lancashire Witches, and I had five bars of chocolate cream, so that that journey was as blissfully happy as any experience could be to me at that time. I was permitted to read in peace, and I had just then little more to ask of life. Nevertheless, as the train puffed its way north, this new country began to force itself on my attention. I had never before been in the north of England, and I was not prepared for the sudden sense of space and freshness that I received. The naked, unsystematic hills, the freshness of the wind, on which the birds seemed to be carried with a special glee, the stone walls that ran like grey ribbons about the moors, and above all, the vast expanse of sky upon whose surface clouds swam, raced, eddied and extended as I had never anywhere witnessed. I sat, lost and absorbed, at my carriage window. 
And when at last, long after dark had fallen, I heard Sea Scale called by the porter, I was still staring in a sort of romantic dream. When I stepped out onto the little narrow platform and was greeted by the salt tang of the sea wind, my first real introduction to the North Country may be said to have been completed. I am writing now in another part of that same Cumberland country, and beyond my window the line of the fell runs strong and bare against the sky, while below it the lake lies, a fragment of silver glass at the feet of Skiddor. It may be that my sense of the deep mystery of this country had its origin in this same strange story that I am now relating. But again, perhaps not, for I believe that that first evening arrival at Seascale worked some change in me, so that since then none of the world's beauties, from the crimson waters of Kashmir to the rough glories of our own Cornish coast, can rival for me the sharp, peaty winds and strong, resilient turf of the Cumberland Hills. That was a magical drive in the pony trap to Faildyke that evening. It was bitterly cold, but I did not seem to mind it. Everything was magical to me. From the first I could see the great slow hump of Black Coon jet against the frothy clouds of the winter night, and I could hear the sea breaking and the soft rustle of the bare twigs in the hedgerows. I made, too, the friend of my life that night, for it was Bob Armstrong who was driving the trap. He has often told me since, for although he is a slow man of few words, he likes to repeat the things that seemed to him worthwhile that I struck him as pitifully lost that evening on the sea-scale platform. I looked, I don't doubt, pinched and cold enough. In any case, it was a lucky appearance for me, for I won Armstrong's heart there and then, and he, once he gave it, could never bear to take it back again. He, on his side, seemed to me gigantic that night. He had, I believe, one of the broadest chests in the world. It was a curse to him, he said, because no ready-made shirts would ever suit him. I sat in close to him because of the cold. He was very warm, and I could feel his heart beating like a steady clock inside his rough coat. It beat for me that night, and it has beaten for me, I'm glad to say, ever since. In truth, as things turned out, I needed a friend. I was nearly asleep and stiff all over my little body when I was handed down from the trap, and at once led into what seemed to me an immense hall, crowded with the staring heads of slaughtered animals and smelling of straw. I was so sadly weary that my uncles, when I met them in a vast billiard room in which a great fire roared in a stone fireplace like a demon, seemed to me to be double. In any case, what an odd pair they were. My Uncle Robert was a little man with grey, untidy hair and little sharp eyes, hooded by two of the bushiest eyebrows known to humanity. He wore, I remember as though it were yesterday, shabby country clothes of a faded green colour, and he had on one finger a ring with a thick red stone. Another thing that I noticed at once when he kissed me, I detested to be kissed by anybody, was a faint scent that he had connected at once in my mind with the caraway seeds that there are in seed cake. I noticed, too, that his teeth were discoloured and yellow. 
My Uncle Constance I liked at once. He was fat, round, friendly, and clean. Rather a dandy was Uncle Constance. He wore a flower in his buttonhole, and his linen was snowy white in contrast with his brother's. I noticed one thing, though, at that very first meeting, and that was that before he spoke to me and put his fat arm around my shoulder, he seemed to look towards his brother as though for permission. You may say that it was unusual for a boy of my age to notice so much, but in fact, I noticed everything at that time. Years and laziness, alas, have slackened my observation. I had a horrible dream that night. It woke me screaming and brought Bob Armstrong in to quiet me. My room was large, like all the other rooms that I had seen, and empty, with a great expanse of floor and a stone fireplace like the one in the billiard room. It was, I afterwards found, next to the servants' quarters. Armstrong's room was next to mine, and Mrs. Spender's, the housekeeper's, beyond his. Armstrong was then, and is yet, a bachelor. He used to tell me that he loved so many women that he could never bring his mind to choose any one of them. And now he has been too long my personal bodyguard, and is too lazily used to my ways to change his condition. He is, moreover, seventy years of age. Well, what I saw in my dream was this. They had lit a fire for me, and it was necessary. The room was of an icy coldness, and I dreamt that I awoke to see the flames rise to a last vigour before they died away. In the brilliance of that illumination, I was conscious that something was moving in the room. I heard the movement for some little while before I saw anything. I sat up, my heart hammering, and then to my horror discerned slinking against the farther wall, the evilest-looking yellow mongrel of a dog that you can fancy. I find it difficult, I have always found it difficult, to describe exactly the horror of that yellow dog. It lay partly in its colour, which was vile, partly in its mean and bony body, but for the most part in its evil head, flat with sharp little eyes and jagged yellow teeth. As I looked at it, it bared those teeth at me, and then began to creep with an indescribably loathsome action in the direction of my bed. I was at first stiffened with terror. Then, as it neared the bed, its little eyes fixed upon me, and its teeth bared. I screamed again and again. The next I knew was that Armstrong was sitting on my bed, his strong arm about my trembling little body. All I could say, over and over, was, The dog! The dog! The dog! He soothed me as though he had been my mother. See? There's no dog there. There's no one but me. There's no one but me. I continued to tremble. So he got into bed with me, held me close to him, and it was in his comforting arms that I fell asleep. In the morning I woke to a fresh breeze and a shining sun, and the chrysanthemums, orange, crimson, and dun, 
blowing against the grey stone wall beyond the sloping lawns. So I forgot about my dream. I only knew that I loved Bob Armstrong better than anyone else on earth. Everyone during the next days was very kind to me. I was so deeply excited by this country, so new to me, that at first I could think of nothing else. Bob Armstrong was Cumbrian from the top of his flaxen head to the thick nails under his boots, and, in grunts and monosyllables, as was his way, he gave me the colour of the ground. There was romance everywhere, smugglers stealing in and out of drig and sea scale, the ancient cross in Gosforth churchyard, Ravenglass with all its seabirds, once a port of splendour, Muncaster Castle and Broughton, and Black Wastwater with the grim screes, Black Coombe, upon whose broad back the shadows were always dancing, even the little station at Seascale, naked to the sea winds, at whose bookstalls I bought a publication entitled The Weekly Telegraph, that contained week by week instalments of the most thrilling story in the world. Everywhere romance, the cows moving along the sandy lanes, the sea thundering along the drig beach, Gable and Scorfell pulling their cloud caps about their heads, the slow voices of the Cumbrian farmers calling their animals, the little tinkling bell of the Gosforth church. Everywhere romance and beauty. Soon, though, as I became better accustomed to the country, the people immediately around me began to occupy my attention, stimulate my restless curiosity, and especially my two uncles. They were, in fact, queer enough. Faildyke Hall itself was not queer, only very ugly. It had been built about 1830, I should imagine. A square, white building, like a thick-set, rather conceited woman, with a very plain face. The rooms were large, their passages innumerable, and everything covered with a very hideous whitewash. Against this whitewash hung old photographs, yellowed with age, and faded bad watercolours. The furniture was strong and ugly. One romantic feature, though, there was, and that was the little grey tower where my Uncle Robert lived. This tower was at the end of the garden, and looked out over a sloping field to the Scarfell group beyond Wastwater. It had been built hundreds of years ago as a defence against the Scots. Robert had his study and bedroom there for many years, and it was his domain. No one was allowed to enter it, save his old servant, Hucking, a bent, wizened, grubby little man who spoke to no one, and, so they said in the kitchen, managed to go through life without sleeping. He looked after my Uncle Robert, cleaned his rooms, and was supposed to clean his clothes. I, being both an inquisitive and romantic-minded boy, was soon as eagerly excited about this tower as was Bluebeard's wife about the forbidden room. Bob told me that whatever I did, I was never to set foot inside. And then I discovered another thing, that Bob Armstrong hated feared and was proud of my uncle Robert. He was proud of him because he was head of the family, and because, so he said, he was the cleverest old man in the world. Nothing he can't seemingly do, said Bob, but he don't like you to watch him at it. 
All this only increased my longing to see the inside of the tower, although I couldn't be said to be fond of my Uncle Robert either. It would be hard to say that I disliked him during those first days. He was quite kindly to me when he met me, and at mealtimes, when I sat with my two uncles at the long table in the big, bare, whitewashed dining room. He was always anxious to see that I had plenty to eat. But I never liked him. It was perhaps because he wasn't clean. Children are sensitive to those things. Perhaps I didn't like the fusty, seed-cakey smell that he carried about with him. Then there came the day when he invited me into the grey tower and told me about Tarnhelm. Pale, slanting shadows of sunlight fell across the chrysanthemums and the grey stone walls, the long fields and the dusky hills. I was playing by myself by the little stream that ran beyond the rose garden when Uncle Robert came up behind me in the soundless way he had and, tweaking me by the ear, asked me whether I would like to come with him inside his tower. I was, of course, eager enough, but I was frightened too, especially when I saw Hucking's moth-eaten old countenance peering at us from one of the narrow slits that pretended to be windows. However, in we went, my hand in Uncle Robert's hot, dry one. There wasn't, in reality, so very much to see when you were inside, all untidy and musty, with cobwebs over the doorways, and old pieces of rusty iron, and empty boxes in the corners, and the long table in Uncle Robert's study covered with a thousand things. Books with the covers hanging on them, sticky green bottles, a looking-glass, a pair of scales, a globe, a cage with mice in it, a statue of a naked woman, an hourglass, everything old and stained and dusty. However, Uncle Robert made me sit down close to him and told me many interesting stories. Among others, the story about Tarnhelm. Tarnhelm was something that you put over your head and its magic turned you into any animal that you wished to be. Uncle Robert told me the story of a god called Wotan and how he teased the dwarf who possessed Tarnhelm by saying that he couldn't turn himself into a mouse or some such animal. And the dwarf, his pride wounded, turned himself into a mouse, which the god easily captured, and so stole Tarnhelm. On the table, among all the litter, was a grey skullcap. <laughs> That's my Tarnhelm, said Uncle Robert, laughing. Like to see me put it on? But I was suddenly frightened terribly frightened. The sight of Uncle Robert made me feel quite ill. The room began to run round and round. The white mice in the cage twittered. It was stuffy in that room, enough to turn any boy sick. And that was the moment, I think, when Uncle Robert stretched out his hand towards his grey skullcap. After that, I was never happy again in Feldark Hall. That action of his, simple and apparently friendly though it was, seemed to open my eyes to a number of things.
We were now within ten days of Christmas. The thought of Christmas had then, and to tell the truth, still has a most happy effect on me. There is the beautiful story, the geniality and kindliness. Still, in spite of modern pessimists, much happiness and goodwill. Even now I yet enjoy giving presents and receiving them. Then it was an ecstasy to me, the look of the parcel, paper, the string, the exquisite surprise. Therefore I had been anticipating Christmas eagerly. I had been promised a trip into Whitehaven for present buying, and there was to be a tree and a dance for the Gosforth villagers. Then, after my visit to Uncle Robert's tower, all my happiness of anticipation vanished. As the days went on and my observation of one thing and another developed, I would, I think, have run away back to my aunt's in Kensington, had it not been for Bob Armstrong. It was, in fact, Armstrong who started me on that voyage of observation that ended so horribly. For when he had heard that Uncle Robert had taken me inside his tower, his anger was fearful. I'd never before seen him angry. Now his great body shook, and he caught me and held me until I cried out. He wanted me to promise that I would never go inside there again. What? Not even with Uncle Robert? No, most especially not with Uncle Robert. And then, dropping his voice and looking around him to be sure that there was no one listening, he began to curse Uncle Robert. This amazed me, because loyalty to his masters was one of Bob's great laws. I can see us now, standing on the stable cobbles in the falling white dusk, while the horses stamped in their stalls, and the little sharp stars appeared one after another, glittering between the driving clouds. I'll not stay, I heard him say to himself. I'll be like the rest. I'll not be staying to bring a child into it. From that moment he seemed to have me very specially in his charge. Even when I could not see him, I felt that his kindly eye was upon me, and this sense of the necessity that I should be guarded made me yet more uneasy and distressed. The next thing that I observed was that the servants were all fresh, had been there not more than a month or two. Then, only a week before Christmas, the housekeeper departed, Uncle Constance seemed greatly upset at these occurrences. Uncle Robert did not seem in the least affected by them. I come now to my Uncle Constance. At this distance of time it is strange with what clarity I still can see him. His stoutness, his shining cleanliness, his dandyism, the flower in his buttonhole, his brilliantly shod feet, his thin, rather feminine voice. He would have been kind to me, I think, had he dared. But something kept him back. And what that something was I soon discovered. It was fear of my Uncle Robert. It did not take me a day to discover that he was utterly subject to his brother. He said nothing without looking to see how Uncle Robert took it, suggested no plan until he first had assurance from his brother was terrified beyond anything that I had before witnessed in a human being, at any sign of irritation in my uncle. I discovered after this that Uncle Robert enjoyed greatly to play on his brother's fears. 
I did not understand enough of their life to realise what were the weapons that Robert used, but that they were sharp and piercing I was neither too young nor too ignorant to perceive. Such was our situation then, a week before Christmas. The weather had become very wild, with a great wind. All nature seemed in an uproar. I could fancy when I lay in my bed at night and heard the shouting in my chimney that I could catch the crash of the waves upon the beach, see the black waters of Wastwater cream and curdle under the screes. I would lie awake and long for Bob Armstrong, the strength of his arm and the warmth of his breast. I considered myself too grown a boy to make any appeal. I remember that now, almost minute by minute, my fears increased. What gave them force and power? Who can say? I was much alone. I had now a great terror of my uncle. The weather was wild, the rooms of the house large and desolate, the servants mysterious, the walls of the passages lit always with an unnatural glimmer because of their white colour. And although Armstrong had watch over me, he was busy in his affairs and could not always be with me. I grew to fear and dislike my Uncle Robert more and more. Hatred and fear of him seemed to be everywhere. And yet he was always soft-voiced and kindly. Then, a few days before Christmas, occurred the event that was to turn my terror into panic. I had been reading in the library Mrs. Radcliffe's Romance of the Forest, an old book long forgotten, worthy of revival. The library was a fine room, run to seed, bookcases from floor to ceiling, the windows small and dark, holes in the old faded carpet. A lamp burned at a distant table. One stood on a little shelf at my side. Something, I know not what, made me look up. What I saw then can even now stamp my heart in its recollection. By the library door, not moving, staring across the room's length at me, was a yellow dog. I will not attempt to describe all the pitiful fear and mad freezing terror that caught and held me. My main thought, I fancy, was that that other vision on my first night in the place had not been a dream. I was not asleep now. The book in which I had been reading had fallen to the floor. The lamps shed their glow. I could hear the ivy tapping on the pane. No, this was reality. The dog lifted a long, horrible leg and scratched itself. Then, very slowly and silently across the carpet, it came towards me. I could not scream. I could not move. I waited. The animal was even more evil than it had seemed before, with its flat head, its narrow eyes, its yellow fangs. It came steadily in my direction, stopped once to scratch itself again, then was almost at my chair. It looked at me, bared its fangs, but now as though it grinned at me, then passed on. After it was gone, there was a thick, fetid scent in the air, 
the scent of caraway seed. I think now, on looking back, that it was remarkable enough that I, a pale, nervous child who trembled at every sound, should have met the situation as I did. I said nothing about the dog to any living soul, not even to Bob Armstrong. I hid my fears, and fears of a beastly and sickening kind they were too, within my breast. I had the intelligence to perceive, and how I caught in the air the awareness of this I can't at this distance understand, that I was playing my little part in the climax to something that had been piling up for many a month, like the clouds over Gable. Understand that I offer from first to last in this no kind of explanation. There is possibly, and to this day I cannot quite be sure, nothing to explain. My Uncle Robert died simply, but you shall hear. What was beyond any doubt or question was that it was after my seeing the dog in the library that Uncle Robert changed so strangely in his behaviour to me. That may have been the merest coincidence. I only know that as one grows older, one calls things coincidence more and more seldom. In any case, that same night at dinner, Uncle Robert seemed twenty years older. He was bent, shriveled, would not eat, snarled at anyone who spoke to him, and especially avoided even looking at me. It was a painful meal, and it was after it when Uncle Constance and I were sitting alone in the old yellow-papered drawing-room, a room with two ticking clocks forever racing one another, that the most extraordinary thing occurred. Uncle Constance and I were playing draughts, the only sounds were the roaring of the wind down the chimney, the hiss and splutter of the fire, the silly ticking of the clocks. Suddenly Uncle Constance put down the piece that he was about to move and began to cry. To a child it is always a terrible thing to see a grown-up person cry, and even to this day to hear a man cry is very distressing to me. I was moved desperately by poor Uncle Constance, who sat there, his head in his white, plump hands, all his stout body shaking. I ran over to him, and he clutched me and held me as though he would never let me go. He sobbed incoherent words about protecting me, caring for me, seeing that that monster. At the word, I remember that I too began to tremble. I asked my uncle, what monster? But he could only continue to murmur incoherently about hate and not having the pluck, and if only he had the courage. Then, recovering a little, he began to ask me questions. Where had I been? Had I been into his brother's tower? Had I seen anything that frightened me? If I did, would I tell him? And then he muttered that he would never have allowed me to come had he known that it would go as far as this, that it would be better if I went away that night, and that if he were not afraid, then he began to tremble again, and to look at the door. And I trembled too. He held me in his arms. Then we thought that there was a sound, and we listened, our heads up, our two hearts hammering, but it was only the clocks ticking and the wind 
shrieking, as though it would tear the house to pieces. That night, however, when Bob Armstrong came up to bed, he found me sheltering there. I whispered to him that I was frightened. I put my arms around his neck and begged him not to send me away. He promised me that I should not leave him, and I slept all night in the protection of his strength. How, though, can I give any true picture of the fear that pursued me now? For I knew from what both Armstrong and Uncle Constance had said that there was real danger, that it was no hysterical fancy of mine or ill-digested dream. It made it worse that Uncle Robert was now no more seen. He was sick. He kept within his tower, cared for by his old wizened manservant, and so being nowhere, he was everywhere. I stayed with Armstrong when I could, but a kind of pride prevented me from clinging like a girl to his coat. A deathly silence seemed to fall about the place. No one laughed or sang. No dog barked. No bird sang. Two days before Christmas, an iron frost came to grip the land. The fields were rigid. The sky itself seemed to be frozen grey, and under the olive cloud, Scorful and Gable were black. Christmas Eve came. On that morning, I remember I was trying to draw some childish picture of one of Mrs. Radcliffe's scenes when the double doors unfolded and Uncle Robert stood there. He stood there, bent, shriveled, his long grey locks falling over his collar, his bushy eyebrows thrust forward. He wore his old green suit, and on his finger gleamed his heavy red ring. I was frightened, of course, but also I was touched with pity. He looked so old, so frail, so small in this large, empty house. Uncle Robert, I asked timidly, are you better? He bent still lower until he was almost on his hands and feet. Then he looked up at me, and his yellow teeth were bared, almost as an animal snarls. Then the doors closed again. The slow, stealthy, grey afternoon came at last. I walked with Armstrong to Gosforth Village on some business that he had. We said no word of any matter at the hall. I told him, he has reminded me, of how fond I was of him, and that I wanted to be with him always. And he answered that perhaps it might be so, little knowing how true that prophecy was to stand. Like all children, I had a great capacity for forgetting the atmosphere that I was not at that moment in, and I walked beside Bob along the frozen roads, with some of my fears surrendered. But not for long. It was dark when I came into the long, yellow drawing-room. I could hear the bells of Gosforth Church pealing as I passed from the ante-room. A moment later, there came a shrill, terrified cry. Who's that? Who is it? It was Uncle Constance. 
who was standing in front of the yellow silk window curtains, staring at the dusk. I went over to him, and he held me close to him. Listen, he whispered, what can you hear? The double doors through which I had come were half open. At first I could hear nothing but the clocks, the very faint rumble of a cart on the frozen road. There was no wind. My uncle's fingers gripped my shoulder. Listen, he said again, and now I heard. On the stone passage, beyond the drawing room, was the patter of an animal's feet. Uncle Constance and I looked at one another. In that exchanged glance we confessed that our secret was the same. We knew what we should see. A moment later it was there, standing in the double doorway, crouching a little, and staring at us, with a hatred that was mad and sick. The hatred of a sick animal, crazy with unhappiness, but loathing us more than its own misery. Slowly it came towards us, and to my reeling fancy, all the room seemed to stink of caraway seed. Keep back! Keep away! My uncle screamed. I became oddly in my turn, the protector. It shan't touch you! It shan't touch you, uncle! I called. But the animal came on. It stayed for a moment near a little round table that contained a composition of dead waxen fruit under a glass dome. It stayed there, its nose down, smelling the ground. Then, looking up at us, it came on again. Oh God, even now as I write after all these years, it is with me again. The flat skull. The cringing body in its evil colour. And that loathsome smell. It slobbered a little at its jaw. It bared its fangs. Then I screamed, hid my face in my uncle's breast and saw that he held in his trembling hand a thick, heavy, old-fashioned revolver. Then he cried out, Go back, Robert! Go back! The animal came on. He fired. The detonation shook the room. The dog turned and, blood dripping from its throat, crawled across the floor. By the door it halted, turned and looked at us. Then it disappeared into the other room. My uncle had flung down his revolver. He was crying, sniffling. He kept stroking my forehead, murmuring words. At last, clinging to one another, we followed the splotches of blood across the carpet, beside the door, through the doorway. Huddled against the chair in the outer sitting room, one leg twisted under him was my Uncle Robert, shot through the throat. On the floor, by his side, was a grey skullcap.
Today's story was Tarnhelm, or The Death of My Uncle Robert, by Hugh Walpole. It was read by Jasper Strange. Thank you for listening. Until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>